real life superpowers. You can be the first on your class, uh, and that's is very good. But you have to learn about the real world and know what they expect and know uh, how to communicate with the rest of the world, uh, which is not an easy task. Hey everyone, today we speak with Professor Ran Genossar, co-founder and chairman of Vermont Space, a supercomputing startup developing the computer and space technology of the future. Ran founded Vermont Space to manufacture and deliver computers that can fly to and survive in outer space. Over the past 15 years, the company managed to build some of the world's best space computers and is a key player in the global space industry. Enjoy your listen. Real life. Superpowers. Ron, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you on the show. What are you up to these days? Almost 100% focused on uh, the activity at Ramon Space. It's uh, beautiful, it's exciting, and uh, it's uh, doing something new every day. What does that mean? Tell us a little bit about what, what's, what's the day-to-day of creating the future of computing? So... Um, The beautiful thing is that uh, we develop uh, tomorrow's computers um, in our little uh, corner of the world in space, in outer space. Um, but um, it's an ongoing thing that um, every day we find a new challenge. And every day we have to solve um, different problems. And uh, typically, no problem is solved in a day. So... Um, Uh, we're handling uh, and approaching and addressing at the same time maybe 10, 20, 30 different issues and trying to make progress in all of them uh, step by step. And it's exciting because um, most of these problems are uh, not only new to us, sometimes they are new to the world. So we have to find uh, new solutions. We have to uh, think think of new ways and um, innovate. Uh, so that's typically what we call innovate. And um, um, we have to um, really listen to any source of inputs, any ideas, uh, uh, any and all, uh, because uh, sometimes the uh, solutions come from places uh, you never thought of before. And um, It also requires um, working at, at uh, many disciplines. So working with many people and um, every individual sees a certain angle of the same problem. And um, sometimes they think they see a lot more than they actually do, but um, uh, that's part of the fun. And uh, we're trying to um, integrate everything and combine Uh, know-how from different disciplines in order to um, uh, develop something new. Uh, and most of the challenges are, of course, technical. Um, so um, uh, you want to build a computer that runs extremely fast, and suddenly you have to think about mechanical and even thermal issues um, of how you build a system in the end. 
uh, and what um, one aspect, uh, what kind of constraints are created by one aspect and it applies to another aspect. So um, uh, like I said, you can't have the computer running too hot and it's much more sensitive in space than on the ground because um, as we know, luckily or unluckily, unfortunately, uh, there's no air in space. So you can't uh, flow or blow more air in a computer to cool it. And there is no water, so you can't just uh, run water through the computer to cool it. Um, so you have to do something else. And uh, that limits how fast you can run, for example. So all of these things together um, are very interesting. And um, it's as far as possible from a mundane job where you do the same thing every day. Where you know what problems you will be solving next week. And we keep getting challenged by the, the rest of the world. Um, uh, whatever we, we do, we have to uh, live within the financial constraints, how many resources we have. It's extremely hard nowadays to hire more people. We wish we could have. For budget reasons? No, because of um, the glut in the high-tech industry around us. Um, so um, there's uh, so much competition for the engineers, for talented engineers around um, that um, you have to go out and try to uh, seduce people that work for other companies, very good places, that we are even better, that they'd better come to work with us. How do you do that? The most common way of doing it is by paying people more money, but we can't do that. Uh, there are some giant corporations around us that uh, would pay anything. So uh, we end up saying, telling people, look, why don't you come work with us and earn less money? So you have to motivate them with something else. Which I would say, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, I just got to inject that I think at the end of the day, and we hear this from a lot of guests and from the landscape that we see around us, you know, that there's some limit of um, money that from that point on, you know, it doesn't um, equal self-fulfillment. And at least the, the world that I'd like to believe that we live in is such that if a person feels that they buy into a mission of a startup or wherever they work, then, then that, that means something bigger than income. Do you think I'm being delusional? No, you're right on. What we do offer people is all the um, motivational aspect that could convince people to come over. And the first thing about motivation is that people should enjoy uh, what they're doing and be, be very, very happy about what they're doing. And that's one thing. The, the second thing typically is that they feel efficacy. They feel that they can do the job and that they are very active at the job. And the third thing is, if it's well known, they require relatedness. They, they require uh, an environment where people work with them enjoy working with them and they enjoy working with other people and uh, you basically need to fulfill at least these three um, components of intrinsic motivation to get people uh, join. Of course, there are extrinsic motivation, for example, the compensation, whether it's the 
present compens financial compensation or the future expected financial compensation. But just like you said, they, they actually come second. So when I try to hire people, I go talk to them about um, how beautiful are the things that we do and um, how challenging the job is and uh, what are the challenges ahead. And since uh, they need to uh, connect it to the rest of the world, um, I go and describe to them, to candidates, right? The rest of the world in the space industry and the space science and what happens and how we make a difference and how we fit in. And why is it good for humanity, for mankind, for uh, whatever, and um, what good will it do? And in addition, I need to talk to people about why we're doing what we're doing. For example, we address a certain segment of the market in the space industry. And I try to convince people that Indeed, the market is segmented according to what I believe in and that we are addressing the right segment. And here are all the things in the space industry that they may have heard elsewhere, but we will not touch because it doesn't make money or it's not uh, difficult enough or whatever. And that, of course, leads me to saying, look, on the efficacy, it's not just the personal, but also the, the company's efficacy or capability. We're trying to chase those parts of the market where the market absolutely needs us and there is no other uh, source for the solution. So we want to be in a position where we have no competition and the customer cannot make progress without buying from us, without working with us. This is an ideal world, of course, but um, we are trying hard to find that corner in the world where this is true. And when you do that, and when you talk somebody through that, that begins to convince them that not only we are doing great things, you know, um, we create a better mousetrap than other people, but there's a lot many people out there in the world, and there was a lot of money actually there waiting for us to come and deliver. And not just talk during hiring somebody, but I can easily explain to uh, new candidates that when they come into the company, they will continue to be exposed to the rest of the world. And we try to do that continuously so that everybody knows uh, what goes on out there and uh, how we cope with the challenges and how we excel. So the whole thing of uh, getting new people is about motivating them. Yeah, it sounds like that that the engineers themselves they're going for impact and and usefulness. Like instead of design or something for the client, they're working on efficiency and actually the real computing. By it. on that on that differentiator, when you go when you go to space, what is more of a challenge: not having air or the usefulness of the software? Like what side uh, is more important? That's an interesting uh, question with um, a lot of answers. But the bottom line is uh, to go to space, you have to um, fulfill a number of conditions. But before we start into that, to be able to do anything in space, uh, you have to excel. So you have to be number one in what you do. Because if you're not, if there is somebody else number one, 
The customers are so picky, so selective. They will go to the other guy. Who are the customers? So customers are people who make uh, space systems such as satellites or spaceships and so on. And their customers also people who use that for things such as, for example, if it's a telecom satellite, uh, then the users are the telecom companies and the end customers who, uh, you know, uh, you and I may be connected now through a satellite, who knows how the communication goes. So uh, there is um, a, a food chain of customers and customer customers and so on um, that are, uh, are our market. And all in all, they are very selective. What do you need to go to space with Epicure? Like what's the most important thing? The most important is the ability to uh, create a return on investment. That's a, a translation to business terms. But space is hard because there was a lot of radiation and a cosmic radiation and other strange effects, like we talked about, no air. And standard computers don't survive in that environment for too long. Now, people who make expensive spacecraft, uh, such as big satellites and so on, are cost in, in excess of... Um, 10 or $100 million, sometimes $500 million and so on. They want a return on investment by uh, surviving for a long time in space. So they need all the components, all the constituent parts of the satellite to be able to survive the harsh environment over a very long time. And that's what we bring to the, to the table. So, so that's number one. And without that, there's no business. Number two is uh, we have to be very efficient. And efficiency means what is the most, most, most expensive resource? And can you be very efficient with that resource? So it turns that electric power is the most scarce resource in space. This sounds um, sometimes surprising because sunlight use solar panels and the sunlight comes for free so you get solar power and you shouldn't be restricted. So yes, indeed, you don't pay for the um, There is no electric bill, electricity bill, but the ability to generate a lot of power costs a lot of money and weighs many kilograms or tons. And the number one, one of the most critical cost items in launching satellites is the launch. And if you have to launch a five ton satellite, uh, you pay 10, 20, 30 million dollars just for the launch. So you're trying to um, save on uh, weight as much as you can. But if you're a telecom satellite, you need a lot of power because you are trying to beam radio waves from far up in the sky to the ground. So you have to really irradiate a lot of power. So most of the power generated by the solar panels go to or goes to um, radiating uh, the transmissions. And little is left for us in order to do all the digital processing and, and computing. So we have to be extremely efficient because every watt of electricity that we take is considered by some what they, they, they could have made better use of if they could you know, irradiate it to, uh, to the ground. Uh, and same goes for other types of satellite. So number two, 
be extremely efficient in power. And now number three is connected to number one. Uh, number one, I said, you have to show longevity, durability. You have to uh, be in space for a long time. Now, when you launch a satellite today, and a satellite has to live in space for 20 years, nobody has a clue on how communications, computing, uh, uh, entertainment services will look like in 10 years, 15 years, let alone 20 years. So we have to guess. We have to outsmart the market and say, you know what? We don't know either, but we'll create all these access capacity of computing in space, and we are very flexible. You just change the software and suddenly it's something new. So on the ground, I, I give you an analogy on the ground. So everybody's talking about moving to 5G, and I'm sure you've been sold 5G telephones and so on and so on. So the telecom companies, uh, um, the cellular telephony companies, asking themselves, okay, I already have all this infrastructure of, of base of, of base station towers and antennas, and all that was good for 4G. Now, do I throw away all that at huge uh, expense, or can I just upgrade the software? And the answer is more and more, they can just upgrade the software, which is beautiful. Not always. That's what we're trying to make in space. Because in space, there is, you know, you don't want your satellite to become irrelevant in 10 years. So what we offer is, oh, their software. And uh, we'll create new software and new software and so on. You can test it on the ground as much as you want, but you can upload it any day to space and get something new, completely new. So um, that's the dream. And that means that not only we develop something for a customer, we develop something for the, for a customer, something that the customer doesn't even know they need. And we have to tell the customer, trust us, make room for our box in your satellite and make sure you can um, give me some little electric power, additional power in the future. But we'll stick with you. And by the way, when we sell something to a satellite, this is a long-term contract. We have to be with them for the next 20 years to continue and serve the computer. They can serve that computer themselves. So we are in a uh, industry for the long range, for the long distance. And before people get into agreement with us that spend 20 or 30 years, they take a long time to think. So all the developments and all the engagement and all that take years, basically, long uh, before you get in. What do you think is going to be like the next step in, in computing? Like the challenge that you're having is space is usually pushing you to a new innovation. What do you think computers should be, you know, in the next generation? Because like I'm thinking to yourself, you're in position of trying out new things. You can do whatever you want, you know, with different conditions. So where would you take it if you had anything to do with it? So um, I've been teaching uh, computing for a long time and um, uh, it's evident that we are undergoing a revolution. If you talk to me 10 years ago, what will computer do? And everybody, myself included, will say, well, we develop new algorithms and new software and uh, we create new applications and so on. And suddenly over the last few years, 
the world has changed. Somebody moved the cheese around. There is machine learning and artificial intelligence. And uh, in the past, we used to teach uh, ourselves and teach students, uh, look, this is how you solve this problem and that problem and so on. You write all the algorithms. And today, uh, we scratch our head to say, look, why don't you learn machine learning? Because um, so many new problems will be solved or same problems will be solved better by a uh, artificial intelligence work. And artificial intelligence is, well, uh, we delegate some of the work of our intelligence to the computer, and now the computer is doing the hard job. And machine learning, of course, uh, in artificial intelligence provides better results than what we can do is typical algorithms. But the, the, um, the cost or the price to pay is that they have to work much harder. So the computers of the future uh, will do a lot more work uh, because they will be executing uh, very efficient and very uh, intelligent algorithms that we call today artificial intelligence or machine learning or neural network or you name it. There are so many different names. But the bottom line is we build a system that learn by themselves. And uh, we help the learning, of course, and the training, and we have a regular process on how to do that and all that. That's fine. But the world of computing has changed. So there is so much talk about how you make new computers that are now more efficient for machine learning. Now, um, of course, not everything is machine learning, of course. Uh, uh, for example, um, uh, we're talking over Zoom now, and uh, there's a camera, right? And there is a little thing behind the camera that needs to take um, the images of pixels and then um, uh, process the pixels and compress them and so on. So there's still um, uh, more work in the interaction between computers and the rest of the world that, that requires uh, other things. But the core, the, the, uh, the, the smartness is where we see more and more artificial intelligence. And now they suddenly, not only uh, people like um, uh, Netflix who have been using uh, uh, machine learning in order to do recommendation systems, but even the space companies, uh, they say, oh, yeah, we need the AI, we need the whatever. Uh, and we hear that a lot from people who, who don't have a clue what it is and why. Buzzwords. But everybody understands that they will need that. Yeah, we are in a market where we have to think ahead and we can't. When we try to come to the customer and say, what are your requirements? They don't know. They ask us, what, what should their requirement be? Yeah, you, you need to pave the way. But in order to um, get access to their pocket, uh, we have to convince them that we know what we're talking about and they'd better go with us or else they will become redundant in a few years. So that, that leads me right to the next point that I was thinking as, as you were speaking. You are in such a high stakes environment and basically the cost of entry is to be the best in your field. Because as you're saying, if you're not, you don't stand a chance. And I'd like to ask you, how do you become the best in your field? Because I would argue, you know, if you are the best in school in your class and then you're the best employee and you excel, that doesn't sound like it's enough. So there's got to be a sort of... Uh, other element or elements in life in your journey that make you that top one percent what would you say that those are 
So um, there's a lot of um, smarts and technologies that you have to develop, um, but that's not the only thing. The other two things, of course, so you can be the first on your class, uh, and that's is very good. But the two other things is that um, you have to learn about the real world and uh, know what, what they expect and know uh, how to communicate with the rest of the world, uh, which is not an easy task, right? And find out what they will accept as not esoteric, but rather a essential need that they cannot survive without it. As opposed to, you know, crazy things that you say, oh, yeah, it's futuristic, but it's science fiction. The third element is you always need luck. So that helps. And in our field, so we started with uh, making simple processors, uh, simple computers for space, just because the government asked us to do that. How do they know to ask you? Because I'm trying to sort of unpack how you as run became the best in what you do and and i and i'm sure it's beyond being the top student and then the top academic it yeah. has to be beyond yeah, okay so that required a long preparation in order to get to that position of course so i've been doing work on computers for many years and uh made the effort to um, go to the technion and become a professor there and work on the most advanced capabilities that I could. And did we say luck? Um, the Technion, somebody else in the Technion in the 1990s created student satellite. So they took a few students and built a little satellite and sent it to space and it was great, uh, just as an experiment. And then they wanted to make the next one and they involved means they knew I know how to make computer chips and they asked me to prepare one, and I said, fine. And, and we did that as, as an experiment in our lab. It never got launched, but it was a very nice exercise. But then the white people in the government realized that the people in the government who handle satellites, uh, national satellites, of course, uh, these include observ air observation satellites and uh, telecom. So they heard about that, and when they needed the capability um, because they couldn't get, they couldn't import the technology due to all sorts of strategic constraints and so on. By the way, almost every country around the world wishes to develop critical, strategically critical components at home in order not to be dependent on others. So these people in the government came to me and say, okay, can you, can you help do that? Uh, because we know that you know how to make computers, and I didn't really have a clue on how to make them good for space. But they say, can you look into that and research that and do that? That was when you were at the Technion? They came to you as a researcher? Yes. And um, I didn't have to invent much because the techniques on how to build things for space are well known around the world and well published. And so you have to read a lot of papers and realize what you can do and what not. So basically, they could have Googled it? In, in essence, yes. However, there is a lot of literature. So let's say you, you, you want to Google it, and suddenly you see 150 papers, scientific papers or engineering papers telling you how to. How do you choose? How do you select? So the key issue, the two key issues where Israel doesn't have a lot of money, so I have to build something inexpensive. 
And two, uh, we don't have a lot, a lot of time and a lot of uh, manpower to really try and, and research the whole front. Let's find a useful director. So that was the contribution. How you can do something that can, uh, even if you over-design a little bit, can absolutely perform the job and no questions asked. So we did that. Uh, I did it. I, I took a few other people and, and I did that first at the Technion and uh, we proved that uh, we could do it. But as you know, uh, Technion is a university and the university cannot deliver products. They can, they can only promise to take money, but not to deliver anything back other than good people. So we had to incorporate and we did uh, create a company, not as a normal startup, but rather as a um, design group funded by the government. And we were very few people and some of them part-time and so on. But we developed a processor that since then has become known as one of the best in the world. Not because it's a great computer. It is a great computer, but not because of the great computer, but because it can survive in space Zero failures. So it's one of the best in the universe. And what, what happened was that people got it from all over the world and launched it in so many different directions. So we have a few that circle orbit the sun and some that went to an asteroid and some to the moon and some are still orbiting Mars. Beautiful things that, you know, contribution to scientific missions. And Steve Jobs can't say he did that. Uh, I can say I can say I'm, I'm among the few people in the world whose computers have gone uh, to the uh, as far as possible. Uh, one of our computers went 400 million kilometers away and worked over for years and never stopped. And all, in all these cases, uh, and by the way, there are hundreds of other cases in satellite. The one people around the world know they can trust us. So uh, this has been exported all around the world. And uh, um, it's today synonymous to, okay, everlasting computer. Now, that, uh, you know, it, it, it helps create a little revenue, not too much, but it creates huge uh, reputation. Then we build on that. And then came um, uh, second generation and third generation and we got more and more funding and both from European Union and from the government in Israel. And another element of luck was that when the next generation came about, uh, it had to be designed uh, for heavy processing, heavy supercomputing in space. Um, there were a few other contenders around the world, but again, this is not um, a, a very lucrative commercial business. So they had to look for government money, just like I did. And uh, luckily, um, with the poor government in Israel, I got more money than uh, my competitors in the U.S. or in Germany or in France. So, um, and of course, we all know each other and, and talk to each other and um, uh, fight about what's the correct way of doing it and so on. But everybody using their own local funding in order to do what they do. And we created uh, a great next generation computer. Now, uh, each small chip contains 64 computers on one chip. And um, it's designed for supercomputing in space. 
it's been around for four years now. Uh, it hasn't flown yet, uh, which only teaches you how long it takes to get to a real mission in space. But it's well known around the world that that's the frame of reference. That's the thing that other people compare to. That's amazing. And, and it's the best in the world. And um, uh, we need to keep being the best in the world. And there are many cases in space where people say, yeah, but instead of buying the best in the world, I'll buy something less, less expensive or I'll buy something less useful. Uh, for example, uh, people say, you know what? I already know how to run on an Intel processor. I have it in my laptop. I have it in my lab. I know how to build systems around an Intel processor. Yes, it will only hold up in space for two years. So what? I'll build something that will last two years and let's see what's going on. And there's a lot of business like that, and that's good. Yes, there's a lot of a lot of people that want to buy things that don't survive in space. Like they're going to space and they just, you know what, the computer will yeah, just buy a cheaper one. That's a thing? Yes. So uh, there are cases like this where people say, you know what, I, I'll build something that will last a few, only a very small number of years in space, and then I'll, I'll make another one if uh, the business succeeds. And that's a good model. But they find out that the uh, utility, the business efficiency of something like that is quite limited. So most of the people in that kind of segment in the market realize that there is no money to be made. And those that can make money find it still very hard. And they, they tend to slowly develop towards, okay, let's build things that last longer than space. So that's the name of the game when they go, okay, I need something more than 10 years, seven years or 10 years. That's where they come and meet us. I'll give you another example that we do, not just the computer, but um, solid state drive, just, just the disk that we all now have in all computers and so on. So people who use it for space, they need to store a lot of data. And if they take a commercial or even the best industrial SSD, they find out that, you know, two years or three years is all that it lasts. And everybody knows why, you know, people in the industry understand what the limitations are. So we have to build storage that's extremely large and can last 30 years in space. So we use um, our own processors to, to do that. And uh, uh, um, when people need it for something more reliable, that's where they come to us. More recently, it's not just business. Um, there is a new trend in the United States, beautiful trend of uh, competing for making the next space station, uh, manned right. space station, right. Uh, right. like companies like Axiom and Virgin Galactic and so on. Yeah. And they want to build, uh, want to build uh, spacecraft where people will live in for months or maybe years at a time. And uh, the, the sky is the limit. There are so much imaginative, so many imaginative designs, are beautiful. Um, but there, uh, human life depends on the computing infrastructure of that spacecraft. And no, there is no room for uh, compromise, right? So there, you must make an extremely reliable system that will hold on uh, longer than everything else. Our goal is to be the last thing standing. And I can tell you, I can have, I have a proof. 
um, it's hard to show it, but I have a proof. Remember Bereshit. Yeah, we've interviewed two of the founders. We had processor in there. And I know what kind of force it uh, had when it, when it impacted the moon. Nothing. Our devices are tested in a laboratory. You know, G is the, the, the gravity of the Earth. And we are testing it for 20,000 G. So an impact of Bereshit to, on the surface of the moon really did nothing, no damage whatsoever to our processors. So I challenge anybody who wants to go to the moon and go to the crash site and pick up the processor, it still works. Challenge accepted. Yeah, I bought it. If somebody came to you and told you as a child that in the future you would be impacting the future of technology, is that something that you would believe? Were you always a high achiever and, and aiming, you know, for, for, the, for the moon, literally? Stars, thank you. Yeah, so, so I was a uh, um, high achiever uh, all along, except if I try to project back in time uh, the terminologies that we use today, I don't know if we understood the world technology. <laughs> That's what's bothering Ran. You know, I wouldn't understand the, techn- the, the terminology. Yeah. <laughs> But you would believe the essence. Yes, absolutely. Yes, uh, right. Uh, and it wasn't clear um, uh, in which domain and whatever, but uh, I always had a tendency to the more technical side. So I'm not sure um, I could... Uh, change the world if I were a psychologist or um, um, in other domains of uh, knowledge. Um, uh, but in technology, um, that's, a, that's a tendency and a skill and in the hobby that I always had. The, the downside of it is that uh, people tell me my hobby is my work, right? That's the downside. That's amazing. That's, that's the reason you're in the best of what you do. I think that's the answer. Yeah, but people tell me that I cannot retire because I wouldn't know what to do because I, I have to do this uh, for fun. And yeah, that's fine. You know, I can, uh, even if all I do is continue and study and there's so much to learn every day, right? Uh, right before you, I, um, before this meeting, um, I was attending a lecture at a Technion of somebody teaching about something new um, and I keep learning. So that's part of the fun. You know what they say, there's the cliche, which I guess is true. You know, when you do what you love, you don't work a day in your life. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that is correct. Now, sometimes um, I had to work, uh, for example, in this company, right? In the beginning, I had to play the CEO role mm-hmm. and uh, manage the company right. because that was a condition on a part of the government mm-hmm. to give us all the money. They, they told me that they give it to me personally, that I'm in charge of that uh, because of the level of trust, right? Right. Um, so I couldn't, uh, you know, just delegate the responsibility to somebody else. They, the, but now I'm so happy that uh, we have a real professional CEO <laughs> who knows how to do this correctly. And uh, so it's such a large team, you know, raised... Um, significant uh, private money. How much? Uh, we raised close to $20 million. And um, we don't uh, rely on government money anymore. And uh, so the government can't tell me what I can use or what I can't use the money any, uh, for, for. 
We have a team that takes care of all everybody in their field, you know, from human resources to um, finances to um, management and all that. And I continue to do exactly the thing that I love. Yeah, it sounds very clear from you, you know, that that time in your life where you had to, quote unquote, play manager was sort of diverting you from the, the focus of what you you want to do and probably should. Because uh, to be fair, as you're saying now, it's you're letting a professional do it and you're back to focusing on what you're best at. And that sounds like a really good thing. What would you say your superpower is? So I don't know how um, to define that. Maybe you can tell me, but it's the... Um urge to learn and do whatever we do in a better way on one one side but on the other side make sure it impacts the world so if i develop something with nobody uses it anymore or whatever then maybe it doesn't create the same satisfaction and that's why throughout my career at technion i got always involved in startups so only part of that was As a result of technologies that I developed or co-developed at the Technion, uh, and some of them were other people's technologies, but I was involved in startups because I wanted to see uh, the impact. And when I worked for large companies, you know, uh, I took times off and here and there and went for very short periods to work for large corporations. Um, I didn't get the same satisfaction. So I, I spent time at Intel where they build some of the greatest computers around the world, um, but it's too much of a large army. So um, uh, it, it takes a lot of imagination uh, to realize what your specific contribution is. Um, right, and right. in startups, uh, it's um, in small companies, uh, very focused, uh, it's something else. Um, so, um, So if I can not only do that and enjoy that, but also inspire other people and motivate them to do the same and, and, and work to the same goal, I think I'm satisfied. I'm not sure if it's superpower, but to me, that was the, uh, the goal to uh, uh, self-refinement. So, so it would be curiosity and innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And your kryptonite? A few weeks ago, an elite military unit asked me to um, come and teach them what innovation is. And this is extremely hard because now you have to um, uh, reduce to practice all sorts of fuzzy ideas and concepts that you carry in your head. And, okay, can I enumerate uh, 10 items and explain each of them that will help people um, innovate and, and develop innovation? And uh, that was extremely interesting. Uh, a, a challenging exercise for myself. But um, in retrospect, after I've done all that, I realized that um, um, innovation is not being a genius working in a closed quarters. Innovation is being able to uh, work with people. And, and what would you say uh, stands in your way? What, what, makes, uh, you, what makes it hard to achieve things sometimes? So the, the problem number one is that there is only 24 hours a day. And I'd like to do much more than I can. And, and uh, sadly, I have to delegate things or let things drop uh, because I can't uh, finish everything I, I want to do. Um, 
the um, other challenge is um, the ability to um, recognize and admit to oneself that there are limits to what I can do. And uh, there are, uh, in each and every direction, there are smarter people. Uh, and I should turn to uh, if I need to solve a problem and I don't know how. Um, so again, it's learning to work with other people of all sorts. Um, and uh, um, the, the uh, other thing that uh, I have found uh, how to learn and how to teach is um, the ability of, uh, let's say, in a, in a group in the industry where there's a manager and subordinates, right? Can the manager listen to the subordinates? Can, can uh, and I've learned that in, in academia, of course. Uh, I tell you, uh, when I recruit, when, when almost everybody that I know, when we recruit a person to become a PhD student, our PhD student, rule number one, that person has to be smarter than I am. Hmm. Or else it's not worth it. Wow. I don't want to teach somebody. I want the PhD student to teach me. Hmm. Now, that uh, 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 kind of um, affects your perception of self-respect and, and, and self-confidence and, and what you think about yourself, right? Because you keep chasing about after people that are better than yourself. And um, if you can delegate it to, to uh, companies, to a startup, uh, that always has to be the same, right? You have to, you want to work with people that are better engineers than you are, right? Right. And uh, that they will continuously tell me where I'm wrong. If you're unable to um, uh, uh, sustain uh, the constant flow of uh, criticism like that, uh, that's the wrong thing. Yeah, you have to be very humble at the end and be able to be self-critical and identify when it's time for you to shut up and listen, in a sense. Or, in retrospect, admit that you have made a wrong decision and whatever you were told to do was better than what you, you did at the end. But that's a continual thing. So if you cannot thrive in that uh, uh, environment, uh, the enterprise doesn't thrive. And I think that's um, um, one key uh, point in uh, one key quality of um, a startup of environment that we are in, right? Okay. Um, and when people ask, what's, why can't other places around the world generate the same kind of startups? I think we know the answers. And the answers are not the standard ones that are um, being promoted in 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 the media, uh, uh, the uh, informal environment that is really extremely taxing on on each person hmm. continuously. I never thought uh, of it that uh, way. Yeah. Um, so some time ago, um, a large corporation made um, research around the world. What is the benefit of employing an engineer in each of the countries that they are involved in? And in Israel, 
uh, they decided uh, the engineers are extremely expensive, but they better uh, get a hold of as many as they can um, because of uh, number one quality, uh, which they called ethics. And part of ethics is that uh, everybody has to be in peace with themselves. And if you think that your boss is doing something wrong, say, no, 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 I'm not going this way. Uh, you change what you do, or I'm out. Um, and and for each boss to, to never say, uh, regardless of what you think, you do like I think, even if you think it's wrong. That doesn't work. Um, and uh, uh, so it's a challenging environment. So being excellent in the um, technical world wouldn't get us there. You have to also be have be. to be excellent in the uh, interpersonal relations, especially in the um, extremely difficult environment of startups and so on, in order to produce uh, um, results that are best in the world. And uh, that's, um, in other words, I have to invest uh, a lot of time in talking to other people, not just learning and doing technical things. Ron, thank you so much for investing time talking to us uh, and taking the time out of your busy schedule. This has been super insightful uh, and we'll be following you uh, and Ramon's space uh, and we're rooting for you and hoping to see how that you being at the top of your game is proving itself as it has so far. So thank you. Yeah, come fly with us. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> I'm not in the right space. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. It was. Thank you. Bye-bye. Real life. Superpowers. Superpowers.